1: Hello, good friends. Hope you had a good week. And now it's time to wrap it all up right here on the Bill Press Pod with our Reporters Roundtable. Well, for weeks we've been warned that the worst was going to happen total worldwide economic collapse because Republicans and Democrats were so divided they'd never come up with a plan to keep the United States from going belly up. But well, the sky didn't fall after all. Biden and McCarthy made a deal, it passed the House, it's now passed the Senate and suddenly things look almost rosy for the next two years. So what happened? Who gets the credit or the blame? Uh, Does this mean that bipartisanship is back? And meanwhile, every other week it seems the Republican primary gets more crowded. Last week it was Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott. Next week it's Chris Christie and Mike Pence. How many more are waiting in the wings, and do any of them really have a chance of stealing the nomination from Donald Trump. I have so much to talk about. So let's jump right into it with today's panel. Ginger Gibson, Senior Washington Editor, NBC News Digital. Hello, Ginger.
0: Thanks for having me, Bill.
1: Gabe Benedetti, National Correspondent for New York Magazine. Hi, Gabe. Welcome back. Hi, Bill. Good to be here. And also from NBC News, political reporter Alan Smith. Hi, Alan. Always a pleasure to be here, Bill. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, uh, you know, for those of us who live on Capitol Hill, there was the smell of jambalaya in the air last night uh, from one household, <laughs> the Gibson household, jambalaya in honor of the Senate about to pass the uh, the big uh, deficit uh, debt, debt ceiling deal. So, Ginger, how did we go from what was supposed to be the big bang to almost a whimper?
0: It did seem to peter out and pass just in a way that was not shocking or nerve wracking after weeks. And you're right. uh, I did make jambalaya for dinner last night in honor of the Louisiana nature of this legislation that we saw passed. Um, Garrett Graves, one of the lead Republican negotiators from Baton Rouge or from Louisiana, represents Baton Rouge. Shalanda Young, the director of OMB, also from Baton Rouge, one of the top Whoa. White House negotiators. Um, We know that last week uh, they were in the same room watching the LSU women's basketball team (laughs) visit the White House, myself included, uh, uh, maybe quite possibly the biggest LSU women's basketball fan that there is. Um, So uh, it had these Louisiana ties that brought them together uh, and that helped them to negotiate this legislation. Uh, But you're right. We spent weeks sort of wringing our hands, very worried this wasn't going to happen, this unprecedented default. What would happen Happen, the economy would collapse, we would lose thousands of jobs. Um, And they got it done. And they got it done in the most old fashioned Washington way, behind closed doors, hammering it out, building personal relationships, building trust, uh, and doing it in a way that they got their members on board. This was one of the most overwhelmingly bipartisan bills we've seen Congress pass that is controversial, right? That isn't naming a post office. Um, And I think that we're going to hear both parties really talking this up. Going to say, look, I brought back normal Washington and got things done. And Republicans are going to say, we used our leverage to get some cuts.
1: Yeah. So, what about that, Gabe? You know, McCarthy is out there saying this is the biggest savings, the biggest cut in spending in the history of humankind. A huge victory for me and for Republicans. And Biden, who's been fairly quiet though, is also saying this shows that I was right. I can make government work, I can get things done, and I saved the world from economic collapse. Um, so, uh, both sides, right? Or what's going, how do you read it? Who benefits?
2: You mean to tell me that someone in Washington is claiming credit or claiming political <laughs> benefit for a deal? Yeah. I mean, oh, no, oh no. The actual process here was not necessarily all that, uh, did not go exactly as many people expected. I want to be clear that, uh, I think we should take a step back and say, it's not just because the parties were very far away on this. It's because, Biden entered this part of his term saying, "I'm not going to negotiate with these guys," yeah, uh, right. and 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 McCarthy said, "You know, we're essentially said we're going to extort some stuff out of the out of this whole situation." Um, so there, it seemed like a totally incompatible situation, and Biden essentially said, "Well, I guess I don't have a choice but to negotiate here." Um, I think they both have reason to be happy. The the, the in terms of the actual substance of the policy um, of the deal, neither is thrilled. But I think the thing that we have to keep in mind is that. for mccarthy this was an exercise in trying to strike the right balance where he didn't alienate enough of his own caucus to lose his job i mean he has such a tiny margin and forget how don't forget how hard it was for him to get the Uh job in the first place um that you know he really had to make sure that he could figure out a way to sell this as a real conservative uh victory while still making sure that it could get enough democratic votes to actually pass because he knew that some of his you know hardline right-wingers were going to defect so Real tightrope act here. Uh, Biden isn't out there cheering this, of course, because he doesn't want to have to um, submit to this kind of thing every time the debt ceiling comes up for debate or, or you know, every time we reach the debt ceiling. Um, and he'd rather move on. But does this prove his central point that bipartisanship is back and that regular Washington order can work? Yeah, of
1: course it does. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, Alan, I guess both of them, right, McCarthy and Biden, can say – um, hey, you may not like this deal, but it could have been a hell of a lot worse, right? <laughs> on each side. Exactly, and, and really, that's, that's why, at least on the
3: surface, it, it really seems like it's a win for both Biden and McCarthy. Biden, because this deal is nowhere near as bad as what some people were projecting it could be uh, in, in the weeks running up to this, and McCarthy just being able to get a deal that would be approved, by uh, enough members of his caucus to get it through. Um, I have I've I found it interesting that, you know, when the deal was first made, you saw a lot of these far-right members come out and say, you know, he, he caved, this is nowhere near what we wanted to get, so on and so forth. And you felt as if that dam could break, but it really did not. Um, there weren't a bunch of additional people who came out after that initial night. Um, and, you know, this is another instance where, you know, you 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 felt going into it, McCarthy might not have had what it takes, but you know he does come out of here with a deal that he can sell. Um, he can talk about the cuts that were made. They did get uh, some stuff out of this that you know can be brought back home and, and talked about on the trail uh, in in these districts. Uh, but he also was able to do this in a way where uh, you know Democrats were going to end up voting for it, at least enough of them. Uh, and it's it's not the kind of situation where. There's going to be a ton of animosity between the parties, specifically over this now that it's passed.
1: Well, in fact, uh, it could be said, and here is uh, the Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries, pointed out that in the end, um, though McCarthy did take the lead in forcing a deal, that uh, his butt was saved in the end by Democrats who voted for the procedural method to get it to the floor and then provided more votes than McCarthy was able to round up. Here's Leader Jeffries.
2: Earlier today, 29 House Republicans voted to default on our nation's debt and against an agreement that you negotiated. It's an extraordinary act that indicates just the nature of the extremism that is out of control on the other side of the aisle. Extreme
1: MAGA Republicans attempted to take control of the House floor. Democrats took it back for the American people.
2: And we will continue to do what is necessary under the leadership of President Joe Biden.
1: So in a sense, uh, Ginger, was a a good moment for Jeffries too, right? Delivering where he had to deliver.
0: Yeah, I mean, we saw Jeffries keep the caucus together, You know, a little bit of (laughs) complaining there at the end, but that was expected. We actually thought he may lose more Democrats than he did Mm -hmm. um, because of the cut. So I really was able to like coast a bit through his first um, uh, controversy, through his first uh, crisis, maybe controversies. I think crisis is the word. But, you know, there will be times for him to have, I think, his Nancy Pelosi moments down the road where you know, you're trying to have a leader to leader negotiation in the House or in Congress. But the president sort of held on to this one and got it done. And I think Jeffries was able to just stand up and say, look, we support the president. And and for Democrats, there's so much sort of hand wringing all the time. Um, <laughs> it's, it's sometimes hard to distinguish is this more hand wringing than usual. Uh, but when they're looking ahead to next year's election, this was kind of a moment to really show what it looks like when, they have to sort of like something they don't really love um, and maybe a candidate, a presidential candidate that they like and they like some of the things he's done but they don't get excited and love um, what it looks like. This might have been a little microcosm of that.
1: So, by, by the way, I think for the record we should make sure everyone understands that the vote in the House was 314 to 117 in favor and in the Senate uh, last night was 63 to 36. So it really wasn't a nail-biter. It really wasn't close when it came down to the a final vote. Um, but Gabe, you know, the, so it went from, oh, the economy's going to collapse to, okay, we'll, surf, we'll save the economy, but Kevin McCarthy is going to lose his speakership as a result of it. That became, you know, sort of the the theme. Uh, here was uh, Ken Buck from Colorado. Uh, certainly, all the Freedom Caucus members weren't really happy with McCarthy's leadership on this, Uh, So Buck says um, (laughs) uh, this isn't the end of it.
2: The Speaker promised that we would operate at 2022 appropriations levels when he got the support to be Speaker. He's now changed that to 2023 levels plus 1%. That's a a, a major change for a lot of people. And so after this vote, and he will win the vote tonight, but after this vote, we will have discussions uh, about whether there should be a motion to
1: vacate or not. Is that just an empty threat, Gabe, do you think the Freedom Caucus have that kind of strength or does uh, McCarthy come out stronger than ever? Uh,
2: Well, it can always be somewhere in between and likely is. but, But not to diminish the question, I think that is exactly what McCarthy is sort of staying up at night wondering right now. But there is a pretty big gulf between the far right wing of his party, you know, sort of these some of them are fringe members, some of them represent a little bit more of the mainstream, but certainly these people who are more in the threatening wing, let's put it that way, um, there's a pretty big gulf between them threatening him and actually doing something, because trying to uh, get rid of him as Speaker may not be very difficult. Trying to replace him as Speaker with an actual candidate is the hard part. You know, a lot of the calculus that goes into all of this and has gone into these negotiations over the last few weeks on the Republican side, the Democratic side too, but to a lesser extent, is... Who is the political fallout going to you know redound to more more aggressively if this doesn't work, and the Republicans clearly McCarthy clearly calculated that you know he could not afford to let the the country go into default for the obvious reasons, but also because politically speaking it would be a disaster for his party. um Those in his caucus don't necessarily have the same calculus as him, but they also understand that if they were to uh you know try and get rid of him right now and then try to replace him. We get an uh, even more extreme version of the you know 15 rounds of voting, uh, questions about the future of the Republican Party. Really, what they want to do is keep the focus on the Democrats right now um, and, on, and on Biden himself. So there's not a lot of appetite for that kind of procedural fight that's going to go that would have to go down on Capitol Hill. Um, but they can certainly probably, well, likely will uh, just try to make his life difficult in, you know, 15 other different ways over the next few months.
1: And Alan, here, here's one of the things that I found interesting. Um, so once a deal was done, Donald Trump came out and said it's a bad deal. Um, Republicans should default rather than take this deal. Ron DeSantis came out and said it's a bad deal, implying that people should vote against it. Mike Pence came out and said it's a bad deal. Republicans in the House should not go for it. And yet, look what happened. What, what does that tell us about these big presidential candidates or the party or anything
3: I don't know if it says more about the presidential candidates than it does the reality that uh, you know the debt ceiling has to be lifted it is non-negotiable um, it is a great point of leverage for the party out of power uh, in in the White House when you know they they have the opportunity uh, to basically use the debt ceiling as the the ultimate leverage point get some additional things that they would like to see happen. Um, But ultimately, it has to be raised. So if McCarthy is coming out with this deal, um, and he's saying this is this is basically the best thing that we can get um, for a lot of members, you know, that's basically going to be the final line because not voting for it and actually allowing for the debt ceiling to not be lifted and leading to that default. I mean, that just really is not an option. Um, yeah, and I mm-hmm. I know that all through this negotiating process, as you know, has been the case in many debt ceiling negotiating processes in the past, there was this sense that this might really be the time that you know there's no deal and that the U.S. defaults and you know it's it's never been this bad and you know we get to the the finish line and there, there's 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 a deal you know like has been it every time in the past. Uh, it's just a situation where even if you've got prominent people saying this is a bad deal, don't vote for it really for a lot of these guys, there there is no choice.
1: Yeah. Uh, and by the way, I noticed that Trump in all of his comments did not attack Mike Heaven, uh personally for leading the fight uh, to get a deal. So um, even his remarks were somewhat tempered. I guess. Well, look, enough of the debt ceiling talk. Um, the GOP primary is about to get a hell of a lot more interesting with Chris Christie. And Mike Pence jumping in next week. Uh, let's take a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod and our Today's Roundtable, and then we will jump in with both feet into the Republican primary, where it stands today and where it is heading. And we'll be back with uh, Alan Smith, Gabe Benedetti, and Ginger Gibson. And today's roundtable on the Bill Press Pod is brought to you by the American Federation of Government Employees, the good men and women of the AFGE, the largest of our federal employee unions, representing over 750,000 federal employees under the leadership of President Everett Kelly. Uh, They're the men and women who take care of our uh, government agencies, who provide the staff on our government agencies, not only in Washington, D.C., but across the country, from the EPA to the Department of Energy, Department of Transportation, Department of Agriculture, the Treasury, the IRS, all of the federal agencies, uh, they're serving us 24-7, around the clock, uh, year in, year out, no matter who's in the White House, uh, doing great work. We appreciate their great work, uh, the members of the AFG, and particularly grateful for their support, longtime support, of the Bill Press Pod. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Now we're back with today's roundtable on this Friday, June 2nd. Uh, joining us, Alan Smith, political reporter for NBC News, Gabe De Benedetti, national correspondent for the New York Magazine, and Ginger Gibson, senior Washington editor for NBC, NBC News Digital. Next week, Two more jumping in. Chris Christie on Tuesday up in New Hampshire. So, Gabe, uh, he is being called the wild card uh, in the Republican primary, the only one who's willing so far to go out there and really publicly take on Donald Trump. Is there a lane in the primary for that kind of a uh, an open opponent? I mean—
2: Anytime you consider the candidacy of Chris Christie, especially with respect to the question of how he's going after Trump, um, I think you need to consider two things. One is Christie's reputation, which is terrible among both Democrats and Republicans. <laughs> His numbers are truly awful. And the other is this massive asterisk around the idea that he's going to be uh, the Trump antagonist in the race. And that asterisk is he was with Trump until the final days of the Trump presidency was the first, you know, to endorse him, the first of his former opponents to endorse him in 2016 and only uh, jumped from the Trump ship when Trump almost killed him by giving him COVID. So let's <laughs> – I forgot we, we that. We need to be very clear about the idea that Christie is some sort of principled defender of democracy, et cetera, and, and opposing Trump for, for any reason uh, or, or or that he's, you know, been some sort of steadfast Trump antagonist. You know, this is really a problem, though, that a lot of the folks on the on the Republican side are dealing with, which is that um, they are trying to pick at a non-Trump lane while also having, you know, immense records of having supported him. Now, you could argue that there are a lot of voters out there who that who that describes that they're going after voters who, you know, voted for Trump but don't want to support him anymore. Um, It's not totally clear how Christie is going to actually appeal to people personally but you know there's been a lot of speculation and there might be something to it um that what he's really trying to do is just be the sort of uh, targeted weapon that takes trump down uh rather than trying to win for himself Mm -hmm. you know that said i'll believe it when i see it i mean there's a reason that no one's been able to succeed in doing this so far
1: well that is the question alan isn't it facing all these republican candidates um that is it possible to really take on donald trump Uh, broadly, directly, and get the support of Republicans who vote in the primaries. Yeah, I mean... They're all struggling with that, it seems. It definitely
3: hasn't been proven electorally that it's possible, uh, really, since his first run. Um, And, you know, we've seen crazier things, but Chris Christie getting into the race at either flat zero or 1%, it's very difficult to see that he would be the person who'd be able to overcome uh, the former president. Uh, what, what will be interesting though, obviously if Christie gets on that debate stage in August, you know, he could try to wreak havoc or whatnot. Um, but his entrance as well as Mike Pence's entrance in the, in, into the race combined with the fact that you're seeing Ron DeSantis, even if he's not using Trump's name, he is starting to go after him a little bit harder, definitely harder than the other candidates who are already in the race. Um, uh, so you'll have a situation coming up, you know, as we we look toward this August debate, where you know most of the people on that debate stage potentially will be people who will be taking aim at Trump rather than what we saw during 2016, which was in those early debates, people were trying to essentially ignore him, fight with each other, uh, and just like leave him un, un uh, unbothered, right, at center stage. I don't think we're going to see that this time, uh, and I think Pence and Christie getting into the race uh, further solidifies that.
1: Yeah, certainly in 2016, they ignored Trump because they uh, didn't take him seriously, right? In 2024, uh, and 23 and 4, they're ignoring him maybe because they're afraid of him or afraid to take him on. But all right, so it's Tuesday, it's Chris Christie. Ginger, it's Wednesday. Here comes Mike Pence. He's almost the forgotten man in this primary so far. And he's the former vice president of the United States.
0: The former vice president of the United States, who, I, I mean, his story is just so complicated. Um, one would think a former vice president, as our current president is, has a natural advantage to running for president. Um, however, you know, this one ended his term by having the sitting president's supporters chant for his death at the Capitol, right? So this is obviously very different. I think the key here, and I think Alan makes a great point about Christie coming out swinging, um, look at Nikki Haley who's been running since February, also came out of the Trump administration, also was a Republican governor, also had been talked about prior to Trump as a potential presidential candidate. She's been running since February and her numbers have not budged. They have not moved a single point nationally Mm -hmm. despite campaigning and spending lots of money. And she's trying to like straddle that line and not really criticize Trump and like echo some of his stuff and try to take credit for some of the good things, but not really criticize him on the bad things. It's not working for her. It's just not working. And I think the thing that people are going to be watching is when Christie, even if he gets in at zero and Pence, if he gets in at two or three or 4%, can they move their numbers? Is something they're doing resonating or working. Um, And Pence is going to also try that, like, I was part of it, but I was not there for the bad stuff. I'm not to blame for the bad stuff uh, approach. Uh, Chrissy's going to try the, like, I was there and I think it's now all bad. And trust me, I was there. I saw it. It was bad. And if either one of them can start budging those numbers, I really think that we're going to see the rest of the field take note and imitate what Mm. they're doing. Mm -hmm. And if that means more aggressively attacking Christie, I mean, Trump, like Christie will, or that means taking the Pence approach and saying, well, it didn't work for Haley, but maybe it's working better for Pence. We're just going to see this start to be a process where they're all watching each other and figuring out what to do next.
1: Uh, Well, Gabe, I want to come back to you on the credibility issue you raised about Chris Christie. Mike Pence has the same credibility issue too, doesn't he? I mean... (laughs) <laughs> four years of standing by Trump's side and, and and in every speech talking about how proud he was to be part of the greatest administration in the history of the country.
2: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with Christie, at least you can see that he is in some ways, you can interpret what he's doing as trying to chase the glory days of 2012 and 13 when everyone in the Republican Party wanted him to run for president before his Bridgegate scandal. And he had this incredibly good press. With Pence, You know, the rationale is really hard to see. Obviously, he's trying to run as or he will be trying to run as a um, formerly Trump aligned, you know, hardcore Christian conservative candidate, which is something that's a little bit different from what others are offering. Um, It's again, it's not totally obvious that there is a constituency for that Uh, in the past when people have made the argument for Pence to run for president. This is in the pre-Trump era. uh, You know, it was he's he's very conservative, but he's a smart guy. The Koch brothers are behind him. You know, a lot of that stuff is fallen by the wayside here. Um, It's he has to walk this tightrope much more carefully than anyone else, because, you know, at the end of the day, Christie, yes, he is associated with Trump, as I as I outlined earlier. And as we've been talking about, Pence was literally on the ticket with him. He was in the White House with him, Um, you know, and and yes, it's true that Christie broke from Trump when, uh, you know, Trump gave him covid. Well, Pence only broke from Trump when Trump seemed to be OK with protesters trying to find and kill him. Uh, not to be glib about this, obviously it's extremely serious. But it's these are questions that that you know Pence is going to have to answer, and that he's sort of been able to elide so far. Um, but the the question of the lane is really a, a huge one. None of this is to say that Trump is you know just going to walk away with this thing. Just that it's a big muddle right now, and the question of how you deal with the Trump record is the massive one but it's a lot harder than it usually is when candidates are dealing with this kind of question because, of course, Trump is running.
1: Yeah. Uh, So in terms of announcements next week, I also understand that the governor of North Dakota, Doug Burgum, uh, plans to announce next week. I haven't seen any date yet, and uh, uh, frankly, I don't know enough about him to ask a good question about him. So I'll just throw that out there and then move on uh, to one who uh, announced last week, and he's trying to... um, now established exactly how critical he's willing to be of Donald Trump, and that is Ron DeSantis. Uh, So Alan, Ron starts out with, uh, DeSantis starts out with uh, uh, an unusual little problem, which Donald Trump was quick to jump in and take advantage of, that DeSantis can't decide exactly how to pronounce his name. (laughs) Is it DeSantis or DeSantis? Here's Donald Trump.
3: You don't change your name in the middle of a uh, election. <laughs> change his name in the middle of the
1: election. You don't do that. You do it before or after, but ideally <laughs> you don't do it at all. Uh, but uh, most people don't know what I mean. No, he's actually sort of changed the name. <laughs> it's sort of a silly issue, but um, <laughs> it's it's getting a lot of attention about DeSantis. Uh, so how do you read his uh, Iowa trip this week?
3: Well, I mean, just on, on NameGate, gate, I, I can't imagine this having... <laughs> much staying power, but he also doesn't <laughs> seem to be able to give an answer that will make this story go away. Um, no, Why, it, why doesn't he just
1: have a news conference and say, this is how you pronounce my name, right? I am Ron exactly. DeSantis or whatever he wants. Now,
3: at the same time, um, he has been going after Trump harder than the other existing candidates who were in the race. Um, You've seen him go after Trump for signing the First Step Act. You've seen him go after Trump for his handling of COVID. And you know he's really starting to go after Trump for saying Florida is really bad and Andrew Cuomo did a better job handling the pandemic than DeSantis (laughs) did, Um, which in a Republican primary uh, is something that I I think probably makes a little sense to voters. Um, The other thing he's been going after Trump on is the fact that he can only serve one more term if elected. Yeah. Yeah, um, and he's saying, "Look, Republicans, you need me. You need the full eight years because the stuff we want to do is going to take dogged, you know, focus for eight straight years to really make an impact. If it's only four years, this stuff's going to get reversed as soon as somebody else gets in there." Uh, and of course, Trump's comeback to this is, "Well, I can do every single thing within six months." And if if DeSantis is saying he needs eight years, you don't want him as your president. So you're <laughs> seeing them start to fight back and forth over this point. Um, but I I think DeSantis. Had an answer that you're going to hear more of uh when he was actually pressed by NBC's Gabe Gutierrez yesterday, when he said, uh, you know, what do you think about Trump saying he can do all this stuff within six months? And DeSantis says, Well, then why didn't he do it in the, in the, in the 40 years he was in office? Um, so it's that is gonna be a debate I think we really see play out on a debate stage. You know, if Trump does show up for those early debates, um, I think that's gonna be a real focal point. And, you know, it's a an issue that we actually have been covering at NBC a little bit earlier on in the cycle is something that you know Republicans were saying this is going to be a focal point for people who actually want to go after Trump, the fact yeah. that he can't serve two terms if elected.
1: It is – uh, oh, yeah, go Bill, ahead, Rick. Hey. Can
2: I just jump in on the uh, – Please. Yeah. I think Alan is exactly right, but let me as a fellow uh, – you may remember my last name. Um, I have some thoughts on the way that they're <laughs> fighting about these last names. Uh, just to talk about this on the merits, this is insane. Uh, I say my last name both ways, depending on the situation that I'm in. Wow. It's absolutely not an issue. And the idea that uh, people are reacting so gleefully about the fact that he is for different audiences saying his name differently uh, is just sort of this like weird little ignorance. Uh, not to not to, you know, overplay it here. If I'm trying to say my name in a way that, you know, I want people to write it out or understand it. I'll say it slowly. I'll say Di Benedetti. Uh, if I'm just talking casually, I'll say De Benedetti. It's not as if DeSantis is trying to secretly hide who he is, uh, and I will step down from my from my soapbox now uh, but that let me just uh, leave well, my italian American lecturing there
1: well, I just think the problem is that you and Ron DeSantis have too many syllables in your last name, you know I'm uh, one of those breasts with just blessed with one syllable so <laughs>
2: As, a, as an <laughs> italophile, Bill, I, I'm disappointed in you.
1: As someone with uh, the last name Smith, I have little room to talk. There, there you go. Uh, but Ginger, does Ron DeSantis, is he getting to the point right now where uh, he's going to be more under the microscope and more in the focus? And is he ready for that? For example, one of the things I don't think Alan mentioned that is a line of attack for Ron DeSantis is that Trump didn't fire Anthony Fauci. Uh, when he, and he should have. And, and CNN, a couple of days ago, came up with this little clip of Ron DeSantis in March 2020, right in the middle of the COVID uh, crisis. From Dr. Burks to Dr. Fauci to the vice president, who's worked very hard, um, the surgeon general, uh, they, they are really doing a good job. It's a tough, tough situation, but, but they're working hard. Praising Fauci and attacking Trump for not firing Fauci, Ginger.
0: I think it's an open question how much the American public wants to go back and relitigate litigate uh, the 2020 response, but I absolutely think this is a thing we're going to hear talked about, um, both in this Republican primary and in the general election. Uh, look at the Virginia governor's race Last year, or a year before last, it was a, a topic that came up there. It was something that Glenn Youngkin used uh, to criticize Democrats and to make his case for governor. I think we're going to be hearing it again. I think that um, Republicans are keyed up to talk about it, so they're going to be talking about it in their primary as well as their general. And the general, regardless of who wins, and I think that the, the big. Um, question here too, the overarching thing that we're watching play on this Republican primary is how the candidates in the primary and then in the general litigate Trump's four years in office. How do they talk about that time there? Um, Some of the things like he churned through seven cabinet secretaries in like a year and a half or two years at like, you know, whereas Mm. Biden had one, Mm. like we go back and discuss those things. And I think that Republicans are testing out where uh, they can go with those things and where the voters are going to respond positively. And then we're going to have a whole nother round of it come the general election. There were so many deep problems in that White House um, that have been written about and that are known, but we've sort of, I think, all sort of blocked out because they were years ago and we're not dealing with that chaos anymore. And I think we're going to have a real revival of that discussion as as Trump remains at the top of the polls and, and what a future Trump administration will look like given the way that the last one ended.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh a little bit of breaking news I just noticed uh the Department of Labor just announced 339,000 new jobs created in May. Uh so uh, the economy does keep booming along um despite um still people t- some people talking about fears of a uh, a looming recession. No signs of it yet. Uh, so let's go on to the guy who is the top of the ticket, regardless of all these people jumping in. At this point, some 30 or more points ahead of DeSantis and almost all the national polls. Um, and yet, uh, this week, Donald Trump uh, was revealed, CNN, I think was the first to report, that the special counsel, Jack Smith, has a, uh, now possession of of a video, an audio tape where Donald Trump is actually bragging about or talking about uh, a top secret document that he has in his hand as a former president, knowing he shouldn't have it and can't really talk about it. Uh, Gabe, and this has a, a, a document dealing with a possible invasion of Iran. Uh, Gabe, is this just, just one more attack that's not going to have make any difference to Donald Trump or Uh, pretty more serious than that. What do you think? Uh,
2: well, definitely more serious than that because it's not an attack. It's, it's evidence that a prosecutor has in a case that doesn't look like it's going very well for the former president. Uh, this certainly seems pretty bad if he's, if he is seen to be actively concealing, uh, highly classified information, um, and, and, you know, trying to get away with, um, with with keeping it or or not letting not letting the government know about it uh this is one of the cases that i think people who are interested in the legal travails of trump have been really focused on because there's not a lot of getting around the idea that he was you know hiding this classified information that he kept unlawfully uh from government investigators if that you know if this follows it to its natural conclusion and he's found guilty you know that could be a very serious crime Uh, that he is that he's found guilty of. Obviously, that's a long way away. But I think uh, in terms of the political travails here, uh, who's to say how far this goes? You know, Trump obviously has been saying, this is the deep state, don't pay attention to it. But that's old hat at this point, you know, that's that's sort of baked in. And I don't think that a conviction on this, if we do get to that point, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, um, would necessarily uh, change the political calculus. But, you know, these legal problems are piling up, and this one seems especially serious.
1: And does seem to undercut what has been so far the main defense of Donald Trump, right, which is he had every right to do this and or, or didn't really know about them. Um, and we'll see how that plays. So um last night uh, on Fox News, there was a town hall, Uh Sean Hannity interviewing uh, Donald Trump. Uh, I admit I didn't watch it. I'm not sure how many of us did, but we know Alan Smith did because he was tweeting about it, so... Alan, I'm gonna tee you up. The Hannity Foxtown Hall last night. Uh, Donald Trump, um, what are the highlights?
3: Well, I'll tell you what, if you didn't watch it, you didn't really miss out because uh, all right. that, <laughs> I would say, virtually no news was made. Um, one of the things I thought was was most interesting from it, honestly, was Hannity teeing up a question. You know, he's prefacing by essentially saying, you know, some Republicans want Trump to tone it down. Enough with the name calling, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And as Hannity is giving this preamble, the crowd starts booing, <laughs> uh, and and there were a few people who shouted out "No," um, which I thought was a little telling because you know this is obviously going to be something that is debated during the Republican primary. You know, Trump's rivals, uh, including DeSantis. You know, which which he's been hinting at, they might start going. You know, look, we like what you did, but we we just it's too much drama. We don't want the name calling. You know, it's mm-hmm. just it's mm-hmm. juvenile, as Desantis said yesterday. And then you've got you know a room full of uh, the former president supporters booing and saying no. That that is exactly what we want.
1: <laughs> right. Um, one big difference of uh, ginger about last night. Uh, this was Fox News, and the town hall was pre-taped. So they taped it ahead of time. Unlike CNN did not carry it live and apparently they edited out any of Donald Trump's uh, assertions that he won the 2020 election. Uh first of all because it's a big lie, but also because Fox didn't want to be sued again for putting out uh, false knowingly putting out false inf- information they knew was false. Um it looks like they learned something from CNN here. Ginger.
0: We live in some strange times, Bill. Let me just say that. I mean, (laughs) I think that that how we cover Donald Trump's campaign over the next year and a half, however long he remains in this campaign, but even if then, however long he remains in public life is going to be a real, real chapter in some journalism textbooks (laughs) for Mm -hmm. the future. I think there's a lot of challenges. Look, if you told me as an editor that one of my reporters had time to sit down and interview Donald Trump, I'd say, take it, go, ask him hard questions, do it, right? Uh, And we should be, he's running for president. Um, But Fox really demonstrated last night that the challenges are there and that they have to weigh things like knowingly publishing or, or disseminating false statements. They got sued over it, obviously. So that's a, a complicating factor for them. Um, and I just think we're all going to be trying to figure this out for the next year. And I, I know I'll probably get it wrong at least once and have to step back and say, was that the right decision? We should all be stepping back constantly and asking ourselves, was that the right decision? Um, we can't ignore him away, which is what some people would say. Um, and and it it is our obligation to the voters to be telling them what the candidates are saying and what they want to do and what their plans are. And we have to. Um, and so it's a challenge. And I think Fox and CNN and I'm sure my network, you know, my bosses will face many challenges and hard decisions. And the decisions will be difficult from the top all the way down to the intern who has to write something at some point. Right. We all have to be yep. thinking about it and, and weighing those those decisions.
1: Uh, and the question I have is. Back to CNN. Did CNN uh, suggest that they pre-tape it, but Donald Trump turned that down? Or did CNN not even consider pre-taping and just go live? Um, we don't know that. Maybe we'll find that out someday uh, when Chris Licht writes his memoirs. <laughs> but maybe not until then. Okay, well, what a week it has been. Uh, I promises this will be another exciting week next week. And a big thank you to uh, Ginger Gibson, uh, Gabe Benedetti, and Alan Smith for walking us through the news of the week. Um, but as great a job as you did, we're not going to let you go before we find out. What was the one story this week, either one you were working on, have been working on, or your your colleagues covered, or just something you happened to catch that really caught your attention um, more than anything else? Um, so where do we go? Hey, Gabe, how about starting us off?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to start uh, with a story that I was reading and rereading and rereading yesterday uh, in the New York Times um, about a a lovely stretch of historic Georgetown, uh, D.C. The headline of this story is, When the Neighbors Don't Share Your Vision, and That Vision Involves Transformers Statues. Uh, To make a long story short, a very wealthy Georgetown professor has decorated the outside of his home in central Georgetown, Washington, a very lovely, quiet, historic area uh, with two massive Transformers statues from the Transformers movies, uh, and it is a, truly a delightful story. Um, that I really want to just highlight. I want to suggest that everyone read it, and it, it highlight one quote that that that's deep in the story, um, referring to the characters themselves. Um, one of the advocates of this professor says, "People have misunderstood the issue. You talk about compatibility with a historic district." Technically, these guys are millennia old. I mean, they're prehistoric. Uh, So, you know, I I just really want everyone to read this thing and and reread it and frame it.
1: Well, all of my friends in Georgetown uh, are alarmed about this or or not alarmed about it, but everybody's talking about it. So (laughs) that was a a big story. Alan, what caught your attention? Well, I'm
3: going to try my best to not tout uh, the story that I did yesterday on uh, problems in, in Republican canvassing. Uh, But instead, I'm going to mention a story that we had at NBC News today from uh, Henry Gomez and Natasha Karecki on how um, Casey DeSantis is becoming a focal point of DeSantis' campaign. And the contrast really that's going to be drawn uh, with how much she's out there uh, speaking on his behalf and alongside him and uh, Trump who, you know, you really have not seen Melania on his side since the announcement.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's a very interesting story, for sure. In fact, we haven't seen much of her for the last two years, right? Or a year and a half, whatever it's been. Um, uh, A big, a big contrast. Uh, and we'll see what Trump's response to that would be, too. Hmm? Wow. Uh, and Ginger, Your favorite story of the week?
0: Well, Bill, I have to tell you, this played out not like I expected it because I was planning to talk about the Transformers story before. Oh, okay. Including my favorite line in that story Sally Quinn calling Georgetown a beautiful, quaint village. So I will (laughs) get that. But I also picked this story because I thought Alan would talk about his fantastic story that published this week. And since he didn't, I will take the opportunity to tell you about this wonderful piece that Alan Smith spent six months investigating, looking at Republican door-knocking operations and the deep problems that exist in some of these operations and vendors that have real problems, including an example he gave uh, about a door Door knocker who indicated they had knocked on several doors, but were actually eight miles away in a uh, casino. Yeah. <laughs>
2: um,
0: not knocking on doors in the Nevada Senate race last year, and a race that was really important and that Republicans lost um in the twenty twenty two midterms. He took a deep dive into sort of what are the problems that Republicans are facing on door knocking, how they're paying people who are not doing the jobs that they telling them that they're doing, how they have just been plagued. And a really um, fantastic quote where someone said, you know, this is why we're losing. That's why we're losing elections. But nobody wants to admit it. Um, So a really great read um, on this problem and highly recommend Alan Smith's story. Republicans are spending millions on turnout operations that are deeply flawed.
1: That was a great story, Alan. I must say, I have walked, uh, I have knocked on thousands of doors as a political volunteer and uh, without getting paid one dime for any of it. And I think once you start paying so called volunteers either to make phone calls or to knock on doors, uh, or, to collect signatures for an initiative or something like that, you are bound to get in trouble because w- once money's involved, you're going to have people cheat at the system. and Alan pointed out that is very much, very much going on these days. Good job, Alan. Uh, well, my favorite story of the of the week, a name resurfaced this week that um, we haven't heard from in a long time, and I'd rather f- totally forgotten about, and that's the name of a woman by the name of Tara Reed. We first heard about her in 2020. She's a woman who came forward and accused uh, Joe Biden, then a United States senator, of sexually... I don't know assault was the word she used, but taking advantage of her in a hallway when he was a United States senator and she was an intern working in his office. The president denied it. She was kind of discredited at the time, and nothing ever happened to that. She resurfaced yesterday because, two days ago, she announced that she was abandoning her United States citizenship and becoming a Russian citizen. She was defecting and going to join um, uh, Vladimir Putin as a citizen of Russia. She's a longtime fan of Vladimir Putin, has been tweeting about what a strong man he is. So to that sense, maybe it came as no surprise. I am not um, one who engages in conspiracies, but I know some people will be saying, ah, Maybe she was a Russian agent all along. Hmm. Just throw that out there and leave that for you to ponder. Uh, And with that, again, a big thank you to Ginger Gibson, senior Washington editor at NBC News Digital, Gabe DiBenedetti, national correspondent at New York Magazine, and Alan Smith, political reporter for NBC News. Thank you, guys, and thanks to all of you for joining us. Uh, here on the Bill Press Pod and today's Reporters Roundtable. Have a great weekend. Come back Tuesday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. We're going to be talking with Stephen Vladek, a professor from the University of Texas, who's written a very important new book about the shadow docket, pointing out that some 98% of the work of the Supreme Court happens in the shadows, in the dark, in the middle of the night. We don't know anything about it. And these are consequential decisions. It's the latest big scandal, I think, to hit the United States Supreme Court. And we'll be talking about that with Steve Vladek on Tuesday. We'll see you then for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.